When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. Today's guest is Lisa Marciano, who is a union psychoanalyst and is one of three heads of the This Union Life podcast and YouTube channel, which I highly recommend you check out. In this conversation, we talk about certain aspects of the worldwide confrontation of racism that's happening right now, and we put that into the context of the expansive, healthy life of the soul or the psyche or you know, the, the, the human organism as it tries to make sense of the world. This is a very deep, wonderful conversation that I think is very attenuated to this moment and might be very useful for people who are being confronted with a certain way of thinking about activism and about justice who have some qualms about that and who don't want to let that run away with them. And what is the cost of self-possession? It's doubt, humility, and curiosity. Without further ado, here's Lisa. So how are you doing with your channel? Are you getting lots of uh lots of lots of good attention and lots have, of bad attention? I, I've carved out over the last three years, I've carved out I've carved out a niche um mm-hmm. with regards to criticizing a certain strain of activism yeah. that is very yes. inflamed right now. Yes. And I think that I've done it in such a way that the Google algorithm has kind of suppressed me. So I'm not yeah. really getting on anybody's radar that's outside of my uh, wheelhouse. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm uh-huh. just making more connections within the same kind of conversation, right. which I appreciate uh, yeah. in a way because I, I could be confronted with an overdose of backlash for I'm trying to be careful, but I am critiquing some uh, yeah. accepted truths uh, and oh, yeah. within something that, I, that I'm very concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm trying to do it in such a way where I'm performing, um, I'm performing a critical evaluation of it in a way where I'm – in one episode I think was my most successful at doing this where I took the concept of white privilege <sighs> that I had been taught at – the Evergreen State College, and I just, I just played with it. I played with it, right? Yeah. In a way yeah. that you're nice. not allowed to in these seminars. They want you to. It's used to corral people into a framework. So I, I was just providing just a human interaction with an idea, and yeah. and I think that that flexibility is one thing that'll that'll be helpful for somebody who is forced through compelled mandatory training to mm-hmm. to be put through these courses mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. one thing that i'd like your insight in too but i'd also because our first conversation which was I, I didn't look up the date but it was a while ago it was a year and a half ago i think mm-hmm. our first conversation was about the propensity for young women but i think we can broaden that to the propensity of people with a really strong empathetic um capacity to be swept up in collective uh, shock, collective pain, um, collective uh, 
like specters of oppression and mm-hmm. uh how how do how do you how do how does one person has somebody like that uh gain tools to be aware of mm-hmm. kind of when they're excited and aroused in that way and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. able to steer themselves when the, mm-hmm. the rush is on mm-hmm. yeah yeah well hopefully i'm prepared to do that <laughs> um what, uh, well, I'll, I'll just cut in Okay. in the middle of my monologue there. Do you have okay. any, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? What's the, some, something that popped up for you in that? Well, when you wrote to me about wanting to do this, I said yes right away because I, you know, I think this is something that I think about a lot and I do have ideas about it. And so, you know, it was an opportunity for me to kind of collect some ideas. I actually kind of prepped for this, which I hadn't really done before. So, hmm. uh, but I wanted to see if I could, um, get my thoughts in order. Cause I, I think there's a couple of union concepts in particular that, that really help frame what's going on or, or, or at least it provides one way of understanding it. And, um, so if I start expostulating too much, you can just interrupt me, okay. shut me down if I get boring. But Jung said that, okay, so Jung was a contemporary of Freud's more or less. And for a while they were very close collaborators. And then there was this big break um, substantially over the view of sex because Freud really thought that that was the one motivator and Jung said, no, 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 there's all these other motivators, too. Well, one of the other instincts or drives that Jung felt existed was what he called the religious function of the psyche. So he felt that the need, the religious need uh, was as fundamental as sex or aggression or any of these other instincts that we have. And by, by religion, I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about a dogma or a creed, but it's more of an attitude. So what Jung is basically saying, which I think is fundamentally correct, and I think we see this all around, is that we're kind of hardwired to relate to something larger and to need meaning. So we are really meaning-seeking creatures. And if you just try that on and then just, I don't know, scroll through Twitter, (laughs) I think you'll think, yeah, that guy Jung was on to something, you know? Um, So... So, uh, you know, he said there is, he said, um, the decisive question for man is, is he related to something infinite or not? That is the telling question of his life. So we all have a need to be related to something infinite. Now, in centuries past, we had, you know, formal religion that served that purpose for most people, but that just isn't working for most of us these days, right? So we think that we're atheist or that we're agnostic or that we're post-religious. Uh, we that we're post-religious, yeah. that we're, um, yeah, that we're, or that we're spiritual, right? Yeah. But but we don't we don't even maybe realize where these religious attitudes have crept up. So the novelist David Foster Wallace said, there's no, there's no such thing as not worshiping. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we have is what, what we worship. Yeah. 
And I, I mean, I, I don't think that this is, I'm saying anything new here. In fact, I've seen a lot of people sort of expound on this really uh, thoroughly and convincingly that, you know, intersectionality or um, certain kinds of social activism are really a new religion, right? Yeah. Weak order sort of is probably that. the biggest name on, on the list of people, the proponents that are postulating that. Yeah. Who, who did I didn't catch who you said? John McWhorter. Uh-huh. He's an okay. intellectual at Columbia University. He does a right. weekly podcast with Glenn Lowry. Got it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, so white privilege is sort of like original sin, you know, has this really yeah. kind of puritanical thing, right? Yeah. Other people have sort of done that. But I, but I think it, it absolutely fits into this idea that we are meaning-seeking creatures if we if we're not in a dogma or a creed, we'll create a new one for ourselves without even realizing it. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm going to throw out all these great juicy quotes tonight, but here's one of my favorites. Jung said, "Our fearsome gods have only changed their names; they now rhyme with ism." Hmm. And of course, he was writing that you know sometime in the midst of the 20th century, so there were different isms then. Yeah, but. You know, he, he said at another point, he said, all isms are dangerous. All isms are dangerous. And why, because, why are they dangerous? Well, because I think, I mean, that's a good question. Because I think that, so we have a need for meaning. We have a need to feel like we're related to something larger. And getting involved in an ism, whether that's, you know, feminism or environmentalism or... Mm. Um, you know, anti-racism or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, it 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 is a way that we can become um, swept up with a religious kind of fervor that isn't always bad. And I will say that Jung was. I mean, understandably, if you think about you know, sort of, he's living through you know the two world wars. He was really, really distrustful of that. You know, he really was interested in the life of the individual yeah. and he was super distrustful of kind of mass psychology. I I th- personally I think there's a little more nuance than that. I think that sometimes getting swept up in a mass movement can be a really positive thing. There've been a lot of good things that have happened because of that. But undoubtedly it's dangerous because it it um you know, you suspend your own kind of individual critical thought you're swept up it feels very good yeah you know to be sort of swept along and there's also and, an aspect of being a, of departure from the mundane like that that normal life and that absolutely. daily routine and all of those regular connections become transformed and you're you're above you're on a vacation from the it's normal it's transcendent yes and there again is this sense of it sort of being related to a, a, a religious sensibility is that it transcends the normal, the everyday. And, you know, Jung also had this idea about inflation that I wasn't going to bring in, but but I think it's related. So in, inflation is where you get sort of puffed up. You know, it's, I mean, I guess like the kind of classical way of Spiritual thinking about hemorrhoid. it. <laughs> that would be one way of imagining it. Is that the classical way? Or that's no, I was going to say like Icarus, right? Yeah. He gets filled with hubris. He flies too close to the sun and then wax melts. But, but you know, it's this idea that, that we 
take on a sort of almost a godlikeness. You know, we feel full of, let's say, righteousness, and and that can always be that can always be kind of dangerous. There's um, a quote from Robin DiAngelo that I'm working with from an, a talk that she gave at the Evergreen State College a year before the protests, where she says that you don't understand how liberatory it can be to see your racism in everything you do surrounding you everywhere. And, and it's really interesting that she's framing this chaining of yourself to this one narrow lens as a liberatory transcendent mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. And she, she really, she, when, when you watch her, she, she really mimics uh, the priest and she's Catholic and, and you can see the way that she, she presents her ideas are, are overlaid with a lot of the different techniques that Catholicism uses. You know, the, the word enthusiasm, uh, the etymology of it means something like infused with God. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there's that idea that when we're really enthusiastic about something, that we're getting a little inflated. Mm-hmm. You know, we're getting we're getting filled with this kind of religious fervor a little bit. Yeah. So I think, I think you know, and, and that that that's interesting about what you're saying about her because it, it makes me think of the um, ascetics in the Middle Ages who would wear hair shirts or you know sort of flay themselves or something. And and you know, it's the the psychology behind that is so yeah. interesting. Like the flagellates, like. Because, you know, I guarantee you there's something that was happening there that, that released them into some kind of transcendent experience, you know, kind of causing pain. You know, there's probably a physiological response there. But it, yeah. it sounds similar to what she's talking about, you know, sort of chain yourself to this kind of self-flagellating way of looking at the world. And the skies will open. The clouds yeah. will part. Clarity will be given unto you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do I don't want to get ahead of you, but is there? You, you said it, or in this argument that you're touching upon, you're saying that we we need to be really careful, aware of the group religious experience that which ties us into uh, a multiplicity of enthusiasm banging around us in these these marches through the street. That there is violence there, but. Most people aren't performing the violence. Most people are just swept up in that. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder if – does Jung or the Jungian way of thinking direct redirect that through like an individual process of, of – uh, and, and uh, of gaining some sort of individual beatific vision or should we be wary of the transcendent because it's kind of tricky and cartoonish in a way? Yeah, I mean, the, the answer to both is yes. And I, I think, you know, I mean, so I heard the questions like, should we be wary of this? Yes. B- because because you can find transcendence in lots of places. And and some places will, in fact, that that um, that David Foster Wallace quote said something like, I don't have the whole thing, but he goes on to say, like, it's if you're, you know, it's probably better to to um, worship a traditional religion, no matter what it is, because anything else you worship will eat you alive. Hmm. And and I, I think, you know, I mean, that might be an overstatement, but he's on to something. And, uh, you know, Jung, I think, would have completely agreed with that. You know, the thing about traditional religions or traditional philosophies 
is uh, that that they're um, at this point, you know, kind of less likely to be devouring because they've been around for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, and there's a lot of there's a lot of distilled wisdom. Mm. Um, they're kind of knitted into the social structures of our fabric, and they've just they're kind of time tested. You know, I, I'm not I'm not. I'm not being an advocate here for traditional religions necessarily. Um, and obviously religion has been the cause of much suffering too. Yes. I don't want to, but if you're um, a college student and you're looking unconsciously, you're looking for transcendent experience, you might find it going to raves and using drugs, which, okay. The sensual. Um, Love. You might find it by falling in love, which, you know, can be wonderful, but can also be, you know, a hell of a mess. Yeah. <laughs> you can find it by um, going to church on Sunday, which is probably probably pretty safe. Um, or you could find it by joining a collective movement. Mm -hmm. Most of those come with some risk of yeah. one kind or another. And, and, and like, we all have to do this, right? I mean, you said, should we be wary of it? Yes. And we have to do it hmm. because it's those experiences that actually give life meaning. Collective so, meaning-making activities. Well, collective, but, but, but experiences of the transcendent, whether they're collective or not. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. So and if you're aware we, of that beforehand, you'll be able to recognize that urge and hopefully navigate it. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to the punchline about sort of how how do we really how do we how can we make sure that that we don't totally run off the rails? The answer is not you can't you really can't, but there 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 are some things that that we can do to to make sure that we don't go down this um, path where we wind up getting really rigid and. Uh, too overly one-sided and this kind of moral outrage that it's difficult to kind of come back from. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you just, just, uh, just a little bit more on this kind of like when we don't have religion, where, what happens? Another quote from Young, he said, anyone who falls down from the roof or ceiling of the Christian cathedral falls into himself. Which means when you don't have that structure, then you you know then you have to find the meaning within yourself. Now, it's when when you've fallen into yourself and you're you know don't know what to do with that. It's really easy to find something on the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all kinds of radicalization of any stripe. Tailored so, to you. I mean, you, you can select it and then it'll teach you how to behave and you'll have mm -hmm. a lot of supports. We, we've, we've spoken about that within just that one issue of uh, gender questioning youth being swept up in a narrative. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it, um, it gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you a sense of meaning. It gives you a sense of being um, in relationship to a higher value. It gives you a community. And it and it makes you you know it makes you feel really good. There was this amazing thing circulating around Twitter a few days ago. It was this old John Cleese clip. That did you see it? Yeah, I saw that. And he says extremism Classic. makes you feel good. 
because it provides you with enemies. Yeah, that was a good way of, he bent that, I didn't really expect him to go in that direction, but it's very true. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's like a profound psychological truth right there. Okay. That I think Jung, yeah, go ahead. I'm just wondering about when your community's highest value is a right or the winning of a right, uh, as in like a human right, right? Not Mm -hmm. like a ritual right. That definitely shapes, and I would have to go back and like really rethink how a rights-oriented group kind of behaves. But I think that mm-hmm. that would that really does shape probably everything from their rhetoric to their to their community gatherings and how information flows among them. And so you can swap out the right uh, or that that highest ideal for different things, and that will kind of dictate the flavor and the and the fervor. The fervor, the flavor of the yeah. fervor, in a way, of mm-hmm. the group that you're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like what is the ideal toward which we are striving? Yeah, the and if the ideal is we're going to, you know, win the rights for this group, you know, um, I mean, oftentimes that's the language that's used is we want, you know, equal rights mm-hmm. for fill in the blank or whatever. But but actually, if you look at how the group behaves. They're, they're aiming for something much more kind of spiritually comprehensive and transcendent than that, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that that's, um, that's even true with, uh, you know, th- what's, what's going on with... Um, Seattle? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's true. You know, it's, it's like, it's like, We've taken care of the laws around African Americans, or, or anyway, the big ones. There's there is certainly a lot more to do policy wise in terms of mass incarceration and mm-hmm. you know a whole bunch of stuff that that's very legitimate. Um, but but some of the rhetoric of the protests, or or even you know the kind of stuff that I hear honestly mostly from white people is like we have to dismantle white supremacy. Yes. Is, I mean, we could have a conversation about about what that is, right? But that's not exactly a very discreet, concrete goal. Saying well, they've we really, taken white supremacy and they've exploded it to encompass almost every system that they live and breathe within. Yes. Yes. So, so then we're we then I think we're in the realm of uh, a spiritual goal. Yes. You know, I mean, to, to say we really need to change the, the laws around, um, you know, uh, what are the sentencing rules for, you know, p- petty drug possession, you know, like and other things, too. I mean, we could we could we could do that. We could we could do that. And we should do that, by the way, in my opinion. You know, um, considering it as in the frame of frame of mind of what they're pursuing is actually a spiritual ideal or a spiritual goal that actually helps to make sense of really oddball comments. They make like logic, reason and science are all white forms of knowing and engineering and all these, just every single thing. And it really does kind of evoke James Lindsay's uh, contention that it's anti-enlightenment. They're trying to reverse us to a period pre-knowing 
pre-scientific mm-hmm. knowing, and and it's it's actually attaching it's attacking a materialist mindset. It's attacking a a separation, and I'm just spitballing here, a separation between us and life that's impeded by all this technology, which which ironically is causing the feedback mm-hmm. loop mm-hmm. Uh, to mm-hmm. blind it to blind us to what we are struggling against. Well. If you're in the realm of the spiritual or the religious, then immediately you have heresy. Mm-hmm. And, Why do you think? You know, I think. Could you explain that process a little bit? Um. Well, I I think that um, that that extremist extremism, sort of extremist beliefs. Well, so yes, I can, but I, I have to sort of march okay. into the next part. Is that okay? Yeah, I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm no. just going to follow your flow. Okay. All right. This is my transcendent experience. I just have to let you know. <laughs> Gee, if this is what you got going on, Benjamin, I don't know. Hey, I <laughs> you podcast get out more. for love. More. Okay. <laughs> so, so, you know, okay. So um, you know, the thing about the John Cleese thing, that extremism makes you feel good. There is research that backs that up. They did this social science research and they found out that, yeah, it actually, you know, expressing outrage makes you feel better. It alleviates feelings of guilt. Now, how I understand this mm-hmm. is that it is through this Jungian concept of the shadow. Mm-hmm. So this is like kind of one one of Jung's big ideas. It's pretty pretty well known and probably evocative just from the name, but What he basically said is that any part of the personality that's deemed to be unacceptable by the culture kind of gets stuffed down into the shadow. And so what's in the shadow is, you know, lots of maybe good things that just weren't particularly valued in your family or your culture, like, let's say, emotionality for a man. Okay, Okay. so that just goes dark. You don't want to know about it, but it's there. But it's also really, really negative things. And, you know, Jung said something like the the shadow goes, the roots of the shadow go straight to hell. That's not an exact quote, but it's something like that. So there's real, there's real evil there. And, and there's this sense in Jung's psychology, it's very much sort of nothing that is human is foreign to me, that we're, we're, we all have a shadow. We all have done horrible things. We are all capable of doing horrible things. This was really important to Jung. That we be able to understand that um, the terrible, terrible things that we're seeing out in the world, I could do those things. I I could do those things. I I could be that policeman with my knee on someone's neck. So could you. So could everyone. We all have that capacity within us. But that is a very, very difficult thing to come to terms with, and it's threatening to our ego. Hmm. So we don't want to know about those things. Okay. You just made me think. Um, Yeah. yeah, If I may insert a footnote. Um, Absolutely. The talk of white people talking about dismantling systems of white supremacy is really, it's, 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 it's kind of walking around the concept of the shadow. It's really loosely defined. Yes. They're, they're pointing yes. to something. Yes. And this is where it gets into the question of collective guilt and yep. or, or the ability of, of assuming 
the ability to forgive the sins of of everybody else that hubris kind of takes over yes yes no i think you're i think you're exactly right i think that um that the the kind of uh anti-racism work that is recommended that white people do there is like a real kernel of of uh where that's a good idea because you know, I, I think it's true that we're all racist. Like I actually believe that, and not racist in the sense, for example, I could speak for myself. Not not racist in the sense that you know I would espouse you know policies or behaviors that um, you know uh, um, make injustice for a particular group of people. But do do I have um, you know sort of biases of which I'm only dimly aware? Yeah, I'm sure I do. You know, that's that's called the unconscious, you know, that's also called biology to a certain degree. Yeah, I, I would I would I would say that. I mean, we're 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 wired to kind of scan our environment for, you know, are there are there dangers out there? And people that look different from us may kind of trigger that. I I you know, I, I think that that often doesn't, you know, get uh, talked about very much that we we respond to people. And um, I mean, I, I lived in I lived in New York City for for a, a bunch of years. And like, if you're riding the train and it's late at night and some guy gets on the train, like you notice, is he intoxicated? Does he seem psychotic? You know? And like, yeah, I I was on the train and someone got on the train and you know was kind of raving a little bit. And I like do that thing where you get off at the next station, you know. And, and, and it, you know, I, I think if, if we're relatively urbane and not too sheltered, hopefully those cues that we pick up have to do with, like, behavior and presentation rather than skin color. Because yeah. skin color really isn't going to tell you anything about whether it's not someone's dangerous. Unless, unless you lack uh, consistent uh, contact with a physical difference. If you're living in a big city, um, right. then you get inoculated to that level of difference. If you don't, yes. then you're just not going to have that. To construe right. that as bias and then to to twist that there's a there's a twist there that that can be instituted. Um that just know. has to do with unfamiliarity rather than a negative. Yeah. Bias. Yeah, but but I st- but I do th- but I'm I'm mm. a little bit more of like yeah, that's bias and like okay. that's, you know, one of the reasons why I chose to raise my kids in a city is because mm. You know, like that that thing where you grow up in a white suburb and you go to the city for the first time. You're like, oh, black people. It's like, no, not, you know. So it's like we're all racist, right? There are things that we can do to, um, to, to, to try to make ourselves less racist. But th- th- this is where I think the Jungian view of saying I have a shadow. I'm capable of these terrible things. My responsibility is to know that, Okay. Is a it, where I where I differ with the um, I'm going to interrogate myself for my um, unconscious racism is that a I don't believe that we can ever kind you can't Jung said you can't empty out the unconscious I can't go ferreting around in there find all my racism and, and get rid of it it doesn't work like that the best I can do is try to be as conscious as possible but I'm not going to be fully conscious of it what's the difference between what you're saying there. Which is the same thing that Robin D'Angelo is saying. There's a difference in tonality or purpose to D'Angelo, and maybe you're not qualified to actually pinpoint that, but she's, initiation, she's initiating a constant process of dismantlement, whereas you are 
you're letting it go before that. Being aware of it is one thing. Constantly struggling with that particular dark angel. Well, I guess I guess I would say first of all, I, I think another difference, and I, I have to say I have not read Robin D'Angelo, but I think another difference is that I don't just think that white people are fragile. I think that all people are fragile. I think that that, and, and this is one of my issues with the the dialogue mm. is that you know we're we're really fundamentally very much alike, and I'm not claiming color blindness, and I'm not not acknowledging that there's very different experience that African-Americans have than I have. But fundamentally, psychologically, we are the same. And anyone gets fragile when they're, they can get defended and their position is challenged. That's not just something that happens to white people. You know, yeah, that happens to white people. I believe that. Mm-hmm. But it could happen to anyone. And, and so it isn't it isn't a question of, and I also don't think that, you know, sort of our ability to do evil or to, um, you know, to have a shadow is only around racism, right? There's all kinds of ways that we can, that there's all, and, and the problem is that when we're in this place of moral outrage, dime to dollars to what we're doing is taking our shadow and projecting it on someone else. And this is, this is the, the kind of, the underscored part of what I want to say is that what we do with the shadow usually is we don't want to know about it. We don't want to think that we're racist, for example. We don't want to think that we're bad. And so how we manage that so that we can maintain a positive sense of ourselves Hmm. is we take it and we project it on someone else. So if I'm a let's say, uh, uh, you know, a young white girl, and I'm feeling guilty about racism in this country. And then what I do with that, because I, I know that I'm implicated in it somehow, and I think we kind of all are, I agree with that. Then I take it and I say, but I'm not that person is, you know, the person who lives down the hall from me in my college dorm or whatever. He's really racist. And, and then I get all outraged and I can feel morally superior because I've just done this psychological sleight of hand where I've taken the thing in me and I put it on someone else and I'm regulating my experience, my, my sense of okayness by projecting it out. And that's what I see going on a lot. I wonder if so it's 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 the call out thing, right? As yeah. soon as you're calling someone out, you know, I saw Goody Hawkins with the devil. You know, that was that. Why aren't you using your platform to dismantle white supremacy? That you know, you just made yourself feel better because you took your racism and you projected it onto someone else. Could it also be the case that during a moral panic, any given concept? Right now, it, it's race. A hundred years ago, it could be the bourgeoisie. Like there's this, there's this narrative out there. There's this structure, this meaning making making structure called racism, and we're going to be against racism. That actually pulls out much more than just my racism. It pulls out everything in the shadow. It takes a, a complete inventory. And and uh, maybe we shouldn't go here. I don't want to. Go, I don't want to get stuck here. But I think that Trump does that to a lot of people. He brings out a lot of 
if you just look at the replies to his tweets, it's a lot of like people who think really highly of themselves acting in the most horrific way, and and it, it, it's initiating a process in them. So I wonder if if dealing with racism too much or overemphasizing this one flaw in the human being actually just starts pulling out like a some sort of black hole. It just starts – it gets way bigger and it's no longer about race. It's about something – again, it, it transcends that one aspect and if – especially if it's not uh, stapled down to we're going to fix policy, we're going to fix this material problem that we have. Yeah, it's it, It's diffuse. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I would like to think that we could talk about racism and work on racism without having this, as you called it, this kind of moral panic, because I think the process that I talked about where we feel uncomfortable with the shadow material and so we project it out and and in in doing so, that's how you get into the purity spiral, right? Yes. Purity spirals are all about. I need to project my unwanted shadow on you and prove that I am more pure than you. And yeah, I think, you know, Trump, obviously, a lot of people project shadow stuff on Trump. I mean, he really, you know, the other thing about projection is there's always, like Young said, there's always a hook. You don't, you know, you just, it doesn't, it's not random, you know, and Trump has plenty of hooks for shadow <laughs> stuff. There's no question there. But, you know, the, the harder psychological work rather than, you know, pounding your fists about Trump is to say, where is that in me? Mm-hmm. Who? Where is my inner Trump? Mm-hmm. Where's mm-hmm. my inner Derek Chauvin? You know, that that's that is the hard psychological work. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this very important book written by a Jungian analyst. He was um, a, a Jewish Morning. analyst. He was. Yes. Yes. Called it. Yes. Which one? Yes, it's called Depth Psychology and a New Ethic. And it's, um, you know, he, he he's sort of famous for these tomes, you know, that are yeah. really dense and wonderful and delicious. But Depth Psychology and New Ethic is pretty thin, and it's really quite readable. And he says, he, he, he was writing right after World War II, right after the Holocaust. He said, we can no longer afford to manage society by projecting our shadows out onto the other because like that's what happens during wars right yeah it's like oh the you know fill in the blank they're so evil and that's it we put our collective shadow on these other people and then we can go kill them so we can't the world has changed right this is Hmm. now we have nuclear weapons we cannot do that anymore Hmm. we have to locate our own we have to become familiar with our shadow and take some responsibility for it i mean you can't take total responsibility for it because it's never going to become fully conscious Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it's always going to be dangerous it's always going to be tricky it's always going to be something to deal with but you can you can sort of take this responsibility it's a real kind of it's a real sort of grown-up thing to say yeah "Yeah, that could be me not not that that when i see the sort of hysteria um and and um turning it into a story with good people and evil people then I know that we're really in these shadow dynamics that are being projected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of saying, you know, we all, we all, any one of us, of any color, by the way, could do some terrible things or could do some really good things. But, mm-hmm. but the goal is not to um, rid ourselves of it. We can't. The goal but, is to take responsibility for it. Okay, yeah. 
And and avoid a, a shame cycle. Avoid the constant. I, I guess in this conversation, the white guilt, the, the the kneeling, the washing of feet, the performing all these rites and rituals that don't seem to end or lead to. Mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, moral reparations, I think of them, uh, where I'm just going to mm-hmm. cede my moral authority to, authority to you as some sort of payback for what you were robbed from. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of what you're saying that's very similar to what D'Angelo's saying, but it seems, yeah. and I don't know why, it seems like you are doing something healthy. She talks about you need to be uncomfortable. If you're not being uncomfortable, you're not doing the work. And you're saying the same thing, but... When I sense her speaking to me, like I was in, I, I was the student there. Mm-hmm. She's. I, I felt her trying to take my shame, my guilt for her purposes, rather than allowing me to be better at at navigating using my shame and guilt for becoming a better person. Right, and I think you know this this uh, process of coming to terms with our own shadow. It's really between you and you. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you how to do that. I don't have any authority over that, you know, and, and no one has any authority over my process around that. But it is, it is a, it's a really psychological process of introspection. And it's not just around racism either, right? There's so, there's so many ways that shadow gets evoked mm-hmm. and narrowing mm-hmm. it down to this one thing is also, um, seems like it really flattens it. There's a lot of stuff you know, that that in the shadow that's also potentially really good. But there's like also stuff that's evil. Ancestral cooking recipes that just kind of float <laughs> to the surface. <laughs> yeah, that could be. I was gonna say, you know, like my my example before, like emotionality if you're a man, like maybe you learned as a yeah. kid, boys don't yeah. cry, blah blah blah. And then you get to midlife and you're like, Oh my God, I love crying in movies, you know, and it kind yeah. of enriches your life. Yeah. You know, but but there's also stuff that's more much more morally ambivalent or even just downright evil. I think that there is an aspect of that, especially for certain strains of white culture that are they're seeking for some sort of there's a religious aspect, but there's also they're they're seeking for it's it, it feels like they're they're trying to regain something that they feel they don't have, and it it might be located and this is this this is very rudimentary. I'm not I'm I'm going to use stereotypes for the audience. I'm not I, I don't mean to be stereotypical. I'm trying to use these really okay. uh, you know, carefully, but it might be that they project a sensuality and an immediacy of experience in the black community that they don't have because they are supposed to be proper. They, they come from a waspy background and, and they, they're trying to regain something that, that they feel is suppressed in their culture. And there might be some sort of give and take in one culture interacting with another culture like we're seeing right now that, that is kind of speaking to some sort of suppressed aspect of, mm-hmm. uh, of the culture that, they, that they're envious of in, in the other culture. Absolutely. Well, and you know, the, I mean, again, this is this is tricky to, to discuss this because you do get into stereotypes and, and that kind of thing. And I don't want to flatten this, but it's not uncommon that the white people in my practice have dreams of African-Americans. Hmm. And depending on what that situation is, I mean, obviously it can be highly individual because people have different relationships with people of different races and that sort of thing. But if there, if it's not about if it's not about a particular African American person, but say about a, a group, I often find that the dream is often pulling on that imagery to show just what you're talking about. That there's 
vivaciousness, there's a vibrancy, there's a kind of, you know, um, unbridled joy, maybe. And I mean, I'm, I'm even just thinking about a couple dreams where this is exactly mm-hmm. what it was, you know, and, and, and is, is okay, so maybe the psyche trades and stereotypes, I think it probably does sometimes, but there is a sense that um, in very broad brushstrokes, black American culture kind of compensates white American culture white American culture is, you know, stiff and buttoned up and uptight. And um, black American culture is much more in touch with um, the instincts and, um, you know, is has more access to joy and community and that sort of thing. Again, very, very stereotypes, but but, but sort of there's something psychological there, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think you're you're probably right about that. That there's there is a sense that uh, you know that that white Americans were like, hmm, we're missing something. They look like they have it, mm-hmm. and and you know in some sense they do. I mean you know in general African Americans have, have much better senses of you know community, for example, you know than than white Americans. I think. And why show. is guilt the improper way of getting in touch with the shadow or some sort of suppressed aspect of yourself that you're longing for? It seems maybe maybe I'm well, putting too many things together. But. No, no, no. I, I, I like what you're going because I mean, so I just said this thing about how the one compensates the other. But the thing is, if you kind of operationalize that with actual African Americans, like, I yes. have white guilt and I want to, you know, wash your feet, then it seems to me like you're actually othering them. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. you're sort of, because like, although it may be true in very broad terms, what we've just been talking about, that's kind of stereotyped, really, they're people. Yeah. <laughs> just like you and just like me. And they're like, it's not like, you know, they they don't, they it's not like, you know, they're they're as a group. They have some kind of collective answer to our ills. Like that's that's almost like noble savage stuff right there. Yeah, no, it, it's very it's very very close. A lot of the anti racist teaching, when you see it performed out, one of the one of the works or the the practices you're supposed to do is examine your your whiteness or whatever that is. But then you're also called to imagine the oppression of the other group. So you're actually painting a very rudimentary picture in your mind that's not that's collected from media sources and just assembled from whatever the mm-hmm. teachings giving you of this of these people. So mm-hmm. so you're you, one unless you're a really good novelist and if you are you'd be canceled for writing this book, you're not going to have an accurate picture of of this yeah. other person. You're you're yeah. it's highly likely that your imagination's going to be reducing these people and othering these people yes. in the pursuit yes. of becoming closer to them. Yes. So I I highly object and warn against that or mm-hmm. question mm-hmm. that practice. Yeah, and it, you know, by the way, I think it's it's worth saying that um you know, I, I, I know that there are ways that I cannot really get what it's like to be black in this culture. Like, I can't really imagine it. I can listen to African-Americans talk about what their experience is like. And, and I have. And, you know, I'm just always shocked because hmm. I think I just don't want to really believe that it goes on. But it goes on. What? You know, just the little things of. You know, you you can't get a cab. Mm-hmm. You can't get a cab. Or, you know, the the painter that you call to come paint your house, you know, says, oh, sorry, I don't work in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like, 
that happens all the time. I know, I know it does. And I, and I can forget that it does. Yes. Cause I don't, that's not my lived reality. But then, you know, I talk to African-American friends and they remind me that that happens all the time. It's like, shit, really? God, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's not, it, what? Listen, what's the proper way to hold that and to listen to that? Yeah, I, it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, you know, I, th- I think um, what what is the antidote to that? Like, how do we make that better? And I think I, I think that trying to imagine it, um, trying to just imagine it without having the chance to have really kind of talk to someone. <laughs> is a little dangerous as you're pointing out It kind of, you know, you're going to paint some kind of film version of it or something, but trying to, I mean, what, what I, what I, where I think she, where I think she's going that I can get behind is this, this, this thing that I think of this, you know, this is kind of a therapy jargon term, empathic imagination, right? Which hopefully we do all the time if we're therapists and, and -hmm. it's good to be able to do it just in interpersonal relationships too. Like, I can't know what it's like to be you, Benjamin. I can't. But if I listen carefully to you and you talk to me about what it's like to be you, I can use my empathic imagination to to have some mm-hmm. pr- approximate experience of that. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that is very worthwhile. Yeah. But that's but why if- I ended up defaulting to conversations just like this when I wanted to investigate something. It's much better to expose myself to somebody different than me and listen to their story than it is to, you know, read ideas that they produce or that are produced about them on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that um, it, it is an important thing to be able to, to, to try that out. But like you're saying, it, hmm. it, it's something very different when it's between two individuals and, and you're just because trying to empathic imagination really implies um, it's almost a um, hopefully you you've got something going on like this kind of right brain to right brain kind of co-regulation when you're really doing it. Co-regulation. Mm-hmm. Is that like two They're, referees like giving each other a hug kind of thing? No, no, it's it's sort of the neurobiology of it that we're that we're really um, becoming in sync with the timing yes. and the tonality mm-hmm. of our communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's when it is the richest experience. That's when I'm most likely. That's that's going to give me the highest possible chance I can of having a sense of what your experience is like is when we're in that state and you can't get that from rhetoric or slogans. So I don't know, my, my personal Mm -hmm. answer to to solving racism in this country would be something like, um, have more intimate get togethers with your neighbors of other races. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, and I mean, I'm being a little bit facile and a little bit flip, but, but, but in essence, there's something about that. I really getting see, to know each other as people. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see, I can see not not the failure, but the limit of the Martin Luther Jr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, formulation of content of character. It's one thing to, um, 
what 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 this new anti-racism stuff is is asking of us is not only to interact with the individual but understand that the individual is not just a content of character it's an individual that's subjected to patterns within their environment and and insofar as that is what it is it's it's extending our empathy past that connection into understanding that that it's there's a continuum of existence that this human being and that I am subjected to. And either of us have varying degrees of freedom and, you know, and, and other healthy structures around us or disparities in weights. Now, the question is, what, what does my guilt do to solve somebody else's oppression? Nothing. It, I don't think it does. It might allow me to, you know, to, to go out of my way to give them more time, give them more space and boost them up to a certain degree. But it's, it's very easy to be uh, hijacked. And we see that with these letters and these lists going around and then the whole moral panic around that. What are the letters on the lists? If I missed something? Well, uh, it's on Twitter it was, enough today or something. It was last week. Um, the Los Angeles Times printed a story, well, wrote a story about a woman, a black woman who has made a Google Doc about all the theaters that haven't come out with a pro Black Lives Matter uh, screed or, or a statement and then hadn't done it authentically enough and hadn't promised to hire and pay more black actors. So it, it turned it very, it, it, it's extortion. It, it's just plainly extortion. So that that's going too far. And my worry and why I did an episode about that was to inspire people to separate out those actors from if we want progress, we have to really strongly, you know, understand how how that that empathy empathy can very easily lead to being possessed by that ism. That that mm-hmm. the the empathy yeah. is the connection to the ism. So so insofar as we're having that discussion, understanding the empathy, understanding the the importance of that, but also seeing that 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 it can transcend beyond where you intend it to go or mm-hmm. where it's mm-hmm. actually doing any good. Mm-hmm. You know, the the other the other thing that can happen with this sort of this guilt and this empathy is that it can become, as I think you were also saying a minute ago, uh, a way of, you know, I'm going to perform my remorse and then I'm going to feel better. But it's really at your expense, African-American person. I mean, I think there was that letter in The New York Times uh, a week or so ago that African-American author who talked about he was so, you know, enraged getting these texts from white friends saying, oh, just want to make sure you're OK. And, you know, uh, I, I, I get it. That sounds like horrendously insulting, actually. And what it what it what it makes me think of is um, in AA, you have mm. to um, do I think it's I believe I can never remember. I think it might be the fourth step where you. You 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 kind of go through all of the people that you wronged, basically. Maybe that's not the fourth step. I don't know. Someone's going to leave a note in the comments and tell me that I got this all wrong. But but you you know you have to you have to make amends, right? They call it making amends, and you yeah. you go through and you you know it's like the time that you stood up. You, you know you were supposed to be the best man at your best at your buddy's wedding, and yet you were too drunk, so you didn't go. You know the, all those things. The time you blah blah blah. All the the whole list of all the stuff you did when you were drinking. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you're supposed to make an, an amends, but you're only supposed to do it. And I, for, I wish I knew the language that they use because they usually have really nice language. Mm-hmm. You're only supposed to do it if it if it doesn't um, if it doesn't uh, cause them any additional suffering. Hmm. 
So in other words, if you were an asshole to your buddy when you were drinking and you know that calling him up and being like, hey, dude, I'm really sorry, is just going to piss him off and bring back old painful things. You don't do it. It's not about it's not about yeah. you feeling better at someone else's expense. Oh, okay. It's yeah. about you taking responsibility for what you did. So, you know, hmm. there there's there so so that's that's where that's where some of the performative stuff starts to really feel like nails on a chalkboard with me. You know, it's like if we have something to account for either individually or collectively, you know, then then we ought to do it in a way that doesn't um that doesn't require the uh, participation mm-hmm. of, you know, African Americans to um, give us absolution or something. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Because that's it, just but, that's just irritating. We'll we'll see how it falls out. There's so much going on, and it's so busy that you critique one thing, like like you were saying at the very beginning before we started recording about uh, you know being tone deaf. You make you, you make a statement that two days later is tone deaf because you're, you're ta- we're talking about all these different aspects of it. Because with regards to reaching out, this and this happened at Evergreen. You, I was told my silence is violence. Then when I tried to speak, I was told to shut up. Yes. And, and, and yes. okay, well, now you're playing a game and we're not going anywhere, but everybody's yep. playing the game. So it's like, where are we going, you know, which is yeah. the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the silence is violence stuff. I mean, it's it it is just more of that dynamic of shadow projection. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it's like I can call you out because you're being silent. And then I can call you out because you're speaking and you're taking up too much space. And every time I do that, every time I call you out, I get relieved of my mm-hmm. own stuff mm-hmm. because I'm not, I'm not being silent. I'm not taking up too much space. Mm-hmm. So it creates this, um, it feels good, as John Cleese would say, it feels good, <laughs> you know? Well, how do you then... Maybe you can give me advice specifically, but you you are a you're somebody who maybe, maybe you don't do this. How do you criticize? How do you be a critic, and and not and be I guess aware of your shadow or like actually produce something useful if you're speaking out, if you're calling something out, if you're if you're standing up to an injustice. How do you how do you know that you're doing it from the right place that you're not just in caught in a projection spiral or yeah i think that actually is a really good question and i think that um you know i i think you have to be really careful and uh you know i mean i have spoken out about my concern about you know teens medically transitioning Mm -hmm. as you know and and so that that is something i wonder about all the time and i there's something that's referred to as intellectual humility, where you sort of constantly test yourself, like, am I right about this? Am I right about this? And I, I really do try to do that. I try to, you know, read the new research papers that come out, even if yeah. like their conclusions are ones I don't like. And then I'm mm. like, hmm, well, maybe I got that wrong before, you know, and mm. then I talk to really smart people and they help me understand the research. And, um, and I, you know, and I have uh, various, you know, I have people that help me think about this formally, um, where I kind of engage with them to, you know, am, am I getting carried away? Am I getting inflated? You know, there's a, a other therapist that we meet regularly to sort of 
make sure that that's not happening. We've actually talked about that explicitly. Are we getting inflated with this or, you know, do we have this right? Are we being nuanced enough? Is there another side? Yeah. It's, it is, there's a, a bit of a discipline, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and a lot of activist communities, a lot of this, specifically a lot of this anti-racist pedagogy that's now being pushed out everywhere very carefully limits the ability to carefully think about it. It wants you to think, yes. criticize yourself, yes. but don't yes. criticize it, yes. which is turns people into raging maniacs. Like they, they're, they're, they get inflamed with their righteousness. All those yes. uh, guards or, or like, you know, those, those, I guess, uh, you know, security measures to stop somebody from going up that rung are, are are off, and that's why you see a lot of this histrionic behavior, specifically yeah. at Evergreen. But you're going to see it in the in the broader sphere right now because of that that rush and that panic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I think what you said is really important. That um, you know you have to be able to interrogate everything, and you have to be willing to do that in yourself, but everything else too. And, and you have to feel comfortable not not having firm footing. You know, there's this way that we want to we want to do away with doubt. Yeah. But doubt is your friend. Yeah. And and if you don't have some doubt, then you're probably not in a good place. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. then you're probably in an inflated place. So you should always doubt everything, at least a little bit. Can I ask you something off topic? Yeah. Have you and your podcast friends talked about the Karen archetype? No, we haven't. Do you have any thoughts on that? We don't have to talk about it, but I just thought it'd be fun to hear your thoughts about the Karen archetype. Well, I do have some thoughts. They're not very well thought out. (laughs) They're a little salty. Maybe we can save that for (laughs) really. No, I'll I'll, I'll throw it out there. I I think it's like misogynistic and ageist, you know? And yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, that that, that it actually really kind of pisses me off. Okay, yeah. You know, because it's like, yeah, because it is a way of, you know, and I'm. Mm. this is just so rampant on Twitter. It's a way of silencing women, mm-hmm. particularly older women. Okay. And I, you know, I wouldn't have believed it before I got on Twitter. I would have said, no, <laughs> no, we don't do that anymore. Oh, yeah, we sure do. So uh, to discredit and silence women. Yeah. I was thinking about... Um, before everything turned into this one topic, I was involved in like really wrestling with ideas of gender and trying to like play with them a little bit. And I'm sure I made some missteps, but one thing I was trying to formulate was different varieties of misogyny, um, in order to give some understanding of, cause I think that there are, there's different types of misogyny and some of it's kind of playful, some of it's protective of the male. And when earlier, when you're talking about the shadow, I can see, I, I have seen some men have put all of their negativity onto women, they're really talking about parts of themselves that they can't handle or they're really Absolutely. disgusted with, especially Absolutely. with really very creative men. I see that, that they are, when they're abusive to women, they're actually, 
because they're wrestling with with themselves in a way and not um and i i was just thinking like like there's just different varieties of that and if if there was more conversation about it rather than just stigmatizing it because the stigma allows for the shadow and the projection of the shadow that you see from certain areas within uh gender critical feminism or uh twitter feminism they do a lot of projection because there's this boogeyman of of the misogyny so if if we can separate like if you start understanding like the opera the operation of of misogyny yes. within these yes. different uh, movements or well, f- individuals right i think you're you're making a great point which is once we've identified that someone is projecting their shadow then if we call that out then we're actually projecting our <laughs> shadow too and then we're and then we're in the dance right yeah and i think the antidote to that it's <laughs> a good one <laughs> i think the antidote to that is is probably contained in one word, which is curiosity, hmm. which you embody very well, I would oh. say. It, um, there's that, doubt, humility, and curiosity is like the is the yeah, the hero yeah. of that trilogy kind of thing. Yep, yep. Those are those are the three the three qualities. And you know, curiosity etymologically comes from the Latin word meaning care. Oh mm-hmm. really? So does yeah. patience. No, patience comes from suffering. Suffering, okay. yeah, yeah. So, um, so huh. when when we're curious, when we're really curious about another person, or or a dynamic, like you're talking about, um, uh, you know, the boogeyman, you know, the the gender critical feminists, and and you know where that can go. If we're really curious about it, instead of just denouncing it, mm-hmm, I mean, we mm-hmm. might agree it's a bad thing and it shouldn't exist, like racism, for example. But if we can find a way to be really curious about it, we're we're going to understand it better. Um, if it's a person, we we will be able to exercise our empathic imagination to deeply understand where that person's coming from. Which that's when things can transform, mm-hmm. whether or not it's a relationship or a societal dynamic. Yeah, we you, we brought you at the beginning. We were talking about isms. But there's this other variant of ism that we find, and I don't know if there's a word for this already, this concept, but uh, the, these, these stigmas, these, these stigmas that we say this is the enemy that we're working against. We're working against racism. We're working against uh, misogyny. You, you identify something that's negative in the world that you want to change, but with racism, misogyny, it's located in the individual, and, and it's impossible to not, in a totalitarian, authoritarian way, confront the individual, the imperfect individual, to, to reform or to inspire the individual. That, the whole brunt of activism, as, a, as groups going after other groups to end these personal problems, I don't know if it's doomed from the get-go because it's not... It's groups acting against the individual. Yeah, and it's... um. It's it's you know demonizing individuals and you're you know that is not a good way to get someone to change yeah right sort of you know you're not dismantling white supremacy you yeah know? so that that's, well, in this day and age and this is the horror of it in this day and age we believe we can just cancel people we can just snuff out their existence whether right now we're doing it figuratively but in history yeah. it's happened very literally. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. So we they don't we don't want them we don't even want them to change we just want them to cease. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and we want to and and 
we want, but while we're doing it, it feels good. Right. Mm. Like while we're snuffing them out, whether or not getting them thrown off Twitter or or killing them, Mm. it feels good because we've we've again, we put our sins onto them. And then we don't have to we don't have to acknowledge that in ourselves. Mm. So it's time for a quote from Solzhenitsyn. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. It's a really famous one. But it's so germane, by the way. Okay. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And that's the concept of the shadow right there. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, it's... In a way, it's making f- peace with your fallen state to, to to import some Christianity in here, like, uh, and it might help us with understanding white privilege as original sin and how that's spiraling out of control. But if we can really just humanize that into just kind of a- accepting our state as faulty human beings, hmm? not expecting. I understand the desire to change the world, the desire for justice, and I understand the necessity and the urgency of addressing certain problems. But as the urgency ramps up, we're not talking about actual problems anymore. We we are getting into realms of human experience that there's careful language already laid out that's not embodied in these activist practices. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, this idea about uh, kind of trying to change the world makes me think of another, a, a great, a great Jungian story. So it's the story of the rainmaker, which Jung heard from uh, one of his friends who was a sinologist who had himself experienced this in some village in China. So the story goes like this. There's a, and I'm, I'm going to get it wrong in the details, but in essence, this is the story. There's this village where it hasn't rained in a really long time. And the people do everything they're supposed to do to make the rains come. The rains don't come. So they send for the rainmaker. They send to this other village. The rainmaker comes and he just gets there and he just pitches a tent on the outside of town and just stays in his little hut or his tent or whatever for a few days. And two days later, the rains start to fall. And um, they say to him, what did you do? He said, well, I got here and, you know, the chi was out of balance or whatever it was. And, and so it got out of balance in me. And I knew that I had to get myself back in balance and then the rains would come. And Jung actually liked that story so much that he actually asked that it be told whenever, uh, you know, a group of Jungians gather. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's a great psychological tale, though, because what, it, what it's saying is, if you're worried about racism, you know, it's a good thing to be worried about. But, but um, take care of yourself and get in balance yourself and do your own inner work around your own racism, your own shadow, your your own tendency to project your uh, evil out there and then feel morally self-righteous. Do that work and the world will change. It will. Can we leave it there? That's so beautiful. It is beautiful. I actually want to leave it with one okay. more quote. I it's just I I have to get the grill going. I have a new grill and it's so. Okay, 30 seconds. No, I there's no rush. I don't want to rush you. I was just wanted to drop the fact that I'm going to be eating charred meat <laughs> tonight. 
That's that sounds good. That sounds good. So this is this is the quote. The best political, social, and spiritual work we can do is to withdraw the projection of our shadow onto others. And what is that which I, I know it's going to be an easy question, but I have to ask, what is that that trips us up in doing that? Because it, it is hard to admit that we have a shadow. Hmm. We don't want to know. Hmm. That's we interesting because without a shadow, we're one-dimensional beings in a way to play around yes. with images. No, nope, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. But we don't want to admit that we're just as bad as everyone else. Yeah, the, the, the little better. I've yet met a utopian who's really come to grips with their own imperfection. I always like don't see that yeah. flaw. And flaws are kind of pretty, actually, aesthetically speaking. If you can start playing with that, that flaw, that that fault, mm-hmm. even the even your anger, even your even your disgust of other people, even your projection onto them, like it it opens up a lot of material. And richness. Yeah, and, and yeah like. absolutely. Life is way more interesting. Well, you better go get that grill on. Thank you so much. This is. I, I wish too. we could do this more often. I, I would love to have you and Sasha on at the same time if you if oh. you'd ever oh, be interested in doing that. That would be so yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah. I think I think both of us would enjoy that. I know I would. Maybe so okay. Yeah. Maybe it'll All happen. Right. Well, have Take a good care. night, Lisa. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.